So what I didn't mention, um, as I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9, actually, we're going to start at, and Lord will, and get to verse uh, chapter 13 today. Um, Joshua was born in another country, and we were in Argentina at the time, and uh, our Spanish, we were only there a few months, and so our Spanish with the medical terms was not very good. And they were offering Katie a lot of stuff to help with the pain, but we didn't know the words and we didn't want to take a chance um, of exactly what they were offering her, you know, some kind of drugs to help her. Um, and so uh, Joshua, if you can imagine this, uh, he's born in this, I mean, this hospital was pretty uh, interesting. And he was born in his hospital and he's got the cord around his neck. And he comes out like a smurf. You know, he's all blue and all that. And uh, she, she grabs the scissors. The first one is not sharp enough to cut the cord. She throws it down. Second one is not sharp enough to cut the cord. She throws it down. By the third one, I got sweat dripping down my... I got this smurf I'm looking at. You know, I'm ready to... And the third one finally cut the cord. And then, and then she goes, you better take your wife out to eat. You save 60 bucks by her not getting those drugs. I go, 60 bucks? I would have taken the drugs for 60 bucks. We didn't even know what they were. You know, 60 bucks. I mean, we saved out $60. That's it. But, um, but God, how God provides. Here we are in Argentina. First few months, our Spanish is not good. And what happens? This nurse comes in. And walks in, and Joshua was just born, and we're trying to take care of Joshua, and we don't, we're in this hospital, and the nurse goes, blah, 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 in Spanish, and we couldn't understand anything. Blah, 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 in Spanish, and like, I'm sorry, we're lost here. What? Oh, you speak English, so do I. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so God sent us a nurse that spoke English, and uh, it was just, it was amazing how the Lord uh, took care of our, our son. Joshua, 15 years later, he survived the three, the cord around his neck and the three scissors, and he's doing great. And maybe the cord around the neck explains why he's a Yankee fan. All right, let's go on to the, uh, let's go on to First uh, Samuel chapter 9 and talk about a beginning of a king here. I want to start off with this sincere beginning of, of this, this King Saul, which is interesting here in First Samuel chapter 9 verse 1. Um, it talks about how there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. That's his, his father, and he's a mighty man of valor. Um, and interesting that he comes from a strong family, uh, a family of, uh, uh, that is a Benjaminite, uh, Benjamite, whatever it is. But look at this in chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 9 here. He has a son whose name is what? What's his name? Saul. Now, do you know what the word Saul means? Saul means asked for or demanded. This is someone they wanted. This is someone they asked for. Interesting enough. Now we saw he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And we understand, if you understand Old Testament history, the king needed to be from the tribe of who? Judah. So he's really not qualified from the get-go. But yet, they asked for him. They want him. They demanded him. And let me, let me just tell you something. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for and demand just to show us that we really shouldn't have asked for it or really don't need what we think we need. 
Imagine a few years later, Joshua is six or seven years old and we walk in the subway and he's hungry because we've been traveling a lot and he goes like this, I want a foot long. And we said, Joshua, you, you can't, you probably can't eat a foot long. That's true. I want a foot long. All right, Joshua, we're going to give you a foot long. I mean, you were born with a quarter on your neck. All right, but we're going to give you a foot long. We gave him a foot long. Guess how much he ate of that foot long? Six inches. You know, he ain't eating no foot long. We knew it, but he wanted it. He got it. Sometimes we go to God just like that. I want this. I want it. Lord, you don't understand. I want it. God gives it, and you're like, I want it. What? I really wanted that? Be careful. And so here is this Saul who they asked for. His name means demanded for, asked for. Here's what's interesting. I can relate to this. He's a choice and handsome man. Not one amen. But he's a, he's a guy in his prime. He's, he's a strong man. He's a handsome man. In fact, there's not one more handsome person than he and all the sons of Israel. I mean, think about that. How would you like that title? I mean, he is eye candy. Eye candy. I mean, I relate. I understand how this is. I'm a sour ball, but I'm eye candy. I'm eye candy. He is eye candy. And look at this. This I can't relate to. He's taller than all the people. I mean, you talk about the credentials. He's got it. He's got everything you would want for in a king. He's demanded the people. This is who they want. He's the, he's young in his prime. He's handsome. He's got the credentials. He's taller than all the people. You want this guy. But here's the problem. He wasn't qualified from the get-go. And you see, sometimes we're so convinced about credentials, we assume character along the way. If they're this, this great person and great leader, they must have good character. It was like the uh, friend of mine in Bible college. I used to look around when he, he wasn't married. He'd say, wow, look at that beautiful girl. She's beautiful. She has to be a Christian. <laughs> they assume character because of the outward appearance. And here they're assuming that Saul's the one. He's got to be the one. I mean, he's, he's in his prime. He's handsome. He's tall. His father's a mighty man. He's got to be the one. Notice this. He's not only that, he's humble. Verse 21 of 1 Samuel 9, it says, Saul replied when he hears some of these things, he goes, am I not a Benjamite? Am I the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? I mean, how can I be the one? How can, he's a humble guy. He's little in his own eyes. He's not thinking that he's got all those credentials so he's qualified. He realizes he's, he's just a humble farmer. How can you talk to me like this? This is the guy you want to hire. This is the one. And what happens? Chapter 10, verse 1. Let's walk through this. Saul is anointed. Samuel takes a, a flask of oil, pours it on his head. Don't forget the Italian kiss. Gives him a nice little kiss in 1 Samuel 10, 1. A little, and he tells him this. You are the Lord's anointed. You're the one that's going to get the special service. And I love this verse. Look at this. 1 Samuel 10.1. Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over what? His inheritance. 
Don't forget whose people these are. These are God's people. Sometimes leaders get that, this is, these are my people, this is my church, these are my deacons, my... No, they're not. These are God's people. And these are the Lord's inheritance. He says, you're a ruler over the Lord's inheritance. And, and he gives them three signs. And I want to I wanna show you these three signs real quick that really help Saul understand this. He says, the first sign that I'm going to give you is to confirm this is that those lost animals that Saul was looking for are going to be found. And what he's saying is, is that God is going to be able to solve your problems. You need to, you need to trust in Him. And then another unusual sign. Three pilgrims are going to give you two loaves of bread. That was unheard of back then, but this was a sign to show that God would provide for His needs. And then he goes, you're going to see another sign. The Holy Spirit of God's going to come upon you and you're going to have power and you're going to be able to prophesy and do all these things and, and God's going to change your heart. Talk about three interesting signs. He says the animals are found. God can solve your problems. He, he's going to give you some bread. God's going to provide for your needs. Not only that, you're going to prophesy. The Holy Spirit of God is going to come upon you and you're going to be a different man. You're going to be endued with power from on high. Notice this here in the next verse, chapter, chapter 10, verse 9. God changed his heart. Now, don't read regeneration into that. Because the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament didn't regenerate people. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament empowered people. Enabled people. That's why when David cried out to God and said, Don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. He was saying, Don't do what you did to Saul and take away the power from me so that I could reign. I need your power. I need your Holy Spirit. But here's what's amazing. God changed his heart. And so he has these signs that God is going to be with them and God is going to solve his problems and, and God's going to take good care of them and God's going to be there and God's going to give them the power. What more could you want? i never forget when we left for Argentina a few months before, we found out, you know what you need to do when you go there is buy a house because renting is unreasonable in Argentina. We said, we have no money to buy a house. How are we going to buy a house in Argentina? The guy goes, there's a church that helped me buy a house. Why don't you write them and ask them? They may help you. So I wrote them and asked them. And guess what they said? No. And then a friend of mine said, how much do you need? I said, we need 60000 to buy a house, which is pretty cheap. But I said, we need 60000 He goes, I'll give you twenty if two other people give you twenty and loan you twenty, and you can buy the house. So I wrote back that same church. I said, the church can't do it. I said, do you know two other people in the church that maybe be able to do it and help us? You know what happened? The day they received my letter, that day somebody gave $40,000 to that church for missions. God said, the guy said, this is a no-brainer. We're going to help you buy the house. Not only they did, they charged us interest. We paid them back an in interest. At the end of the uh, payback, they go, wait a minute, we charged you interest. I'm sorry. We shouldn't have charged you interest. We're giving you back all that money. Before we even got to Argentina, God was showing us, I'll take care of you. I'll be there. Before Saul even reigns and begins to reign, God's telling him, I'll take care of you. I'll be there. 
I'll give you everything you need. You just trust in me. Now you would think that out of gratitude, Saul would react in the right way. But he starts getting weird right in the beginning of this. Watch this. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 10, God changes his heart. The signs come about in that day. It's, it's all exciting time for Saul, Samuel. But, but look at this for Saul. But look at this. His unusual behavior here in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10 verse 16. He, he, he talks to his uncle and his uncle said, What did Samuel say to you, Saul? And you know what he does? He doesn't tell the whole truth. He holds back part of the truth. Why does he do that in the beginning? I mean, he tells him about the animals, but he doesn't tell him about the kingdom. It says here in verse 16, So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys have been found, but he didn't tell him about the matter of the kingdom. He didn't even mention it. <clears throat> so something's going on here. He's not being totally honest. And not only that, all right, now, can you imagine? Here's Samuel's all excited. Saul's going to be presented to the people. He calls the people, your new king. Here's the king that you wanted. And what happens? Look at this. The moment that Saul is about to be revealed, what does he do? I love this verse, 1 Samuel 10, 22. It says, therefore they inquired further the Lord. Where is this guy? I mean, has the man come here yet? Where is he? Oh, he's hiding in the baggage. Here is this tall, handsome hunk of a man hiding, <laughs> reminds me of me, hiding where? In the baggage? What's wrong with this guy? I mean, God already told him that he's with them. He gave him the signs, changed his heart, and here he is hiding in the baggage. Now, it's interesting. The word baggage can mean different things in the Hebrew. Some, some believe it's the instruments, the musical instruments that it could have been. It could have been some furniture that he's hiding in. We don't know exactly what it is. All we know is here's this guy that's going to be the future king that they're about to present to the people. They're looking all over for him, and there he is hiding. You say, why in the world? I'll tell you why. Because here's a man who has everything on the outside, but on the inside, he's lacking serious character. And he is a very insecure leader. And let me tell you where insecurity, let me just tell you this for a moment before we continue on in this story. You know what the problems with insecurity are? And all of us struggle with some insecurities, but let me just tell you some of the problems with insecurity. The first thing is idolatry. You know why? Because insecurity, you have you focus on yourself. And you're told to believe in yourself. You tell me, where in the Bible does it ever tell us to believe in ourselves? And to think better of ourselves? And to think that we can handle things on ourselves? We're supposed to think about Jesus and who he is and center our attention on him. So it's idolatry when we're struggling with insecurity because we're only there thinking about ourselves and trying to get ourselves to be better. And this whole world is about that, by the way. People tell you, believe in yourself. You can do it. Just believe in yourself. Now, don't believe in yourself. That's idolatry. Look at the second thing that's wrong with it. Some people will never be pleased with you. You're insecure about other people not liking you. I got news for you. Some people will always not like you. 
Politicians have no problem with this. They're happy with 50% of the vote. We struggle when one person doesn't like us. And that's all we think about. But you know what? I remember a pastor one time telling me, he was a youth pastor. He said, Jeremy, everywhere I go to be a youth pastor, there's one kid in the youth that doesn't like me. I go, what? <laughs> Some people will never be pleased with you. And you want to know another thing about insecurity? Your value has never been in question. Who cares what people think about you? All that matters is what God thinks. Amen. And we're a child of the king. Did Saul understand these things? No way. He's hiding in the baggage. He's scared to death. He's insecure. He doesn't even tell his uncle the whole truth. And here he is hiding. And, and, and he's off to a weird start here. And, and notice this, what happens here. Even though this is going on, God continues to work in his life. And God continues to try to help him to gain confidence. And, and what does he do right here in 1 Samuel chapter 10? The people, even though he's hiding, he finally comes out. They shout, long live the king. Long live the king. We're behind you. This is who we want. Long live the king. They see he's tall. He's handsome. He's the one. Long live the king. They're behind him. Not only that, God touches people in his life and he has men that are with him that God touched their hearts in 1 Samuel 10, 26. So he has a good group of supporters around him. And not only that, this is great. God enabled him to defeat the Ammonites. And so he's like an amateur boxer, you know, he needs a, he needs a first little fight. And so he picks a fight with the Ammonite and he destroys him. He destroys him. Wow. Here's our king. Here's the one. Here's the one that we've been waiting for. Here's the one. Well, now get ready. First Samuel chapter 13. Let's get to where we, we need to be. His first big test. He's about to fight the Philistines. And remember, this is what he was going to do. This was his mission. Defeat the Philistines. This is why they wanted a king. They wanted to take a king just like the other nations. They wanted to defeat the Philistines. So what happens? Here's what happens. Watch this. They pick a fight with him. And it says here that in verse 2, that Saul chose for himself 3,000 men. 2,000 were with him and 1,000 were with his son, Jonathan. As we meet Jonathan there in chapter 13, verse 2. And Jonathan, he smote the garrison of the Philistines. So now he's picking a fight. This is a, a, a declaration of war here in verse 3. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten them and that the Philistines are upset and the people were summoned to Saul at Gilgal. But notice this, verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight with Israel and look how many they have. 30,000 chariots. 30,000 Chariots. Those are like tanks, by the way, back then. Saul had how many? 3,000. Philistines have how many? 30,000. That's how many more? 10 times more. Uh, a little outnumbered. How did the people react? Ah, we're outnumbered. We're going to trust in God. Don't worry about that. We're going to be fine. No, look at verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves. 
in caves and thickets and in cliffs and cellars and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan in the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him, what? Trembling. <laughs> How about that? Here he is about to fight. He's got 3,000, but now the 3,000 are going down because they're all scared and they start to scatter. Imagine the scene. And they look up and there's 30,000 waiting to fight him. And, and, and so many, he can't even number them. It says as, as, as the sand and the seashore, he can't even number them. So many are looking up. They're in trouble here. Saul's in trouble. This is first test. And what is he going to do? Watch, watch what happens here. He makes a mistake, number one. He fails to wait on the Lord. Now he waited, it says in verse 8, seven days. Why did he wait seven days? Because Samuel told him, you need to wait seven days. You need to wait seven days and then I'm going to come and I'm going to show you what to do. But watch what happens. He, he waited seven days according to the appointed time by Samuel but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. What would you do? I mean, day number four, you got less army. Day number five, less army. Day number six, less army. Day number seven, you're down to 600 people. What are you going to do? Where is Samuel? Where is he? He said seven days. It's seven days. Where is he? He's not there yet. Verse 9. So Saul says this, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he offered what? The burnt offerings. You know what the problem is with this? Problem number one is kings don't offer offerings for the people priests do. And problem number two is Samuel told him to wait. He was going to offer the offerings and he was going to tell them what they needed to do. Not King Saul. But yet... He couldn't wait. He had to do it. He had to act in his timing. You know, somebody said this interesting here. Waiting is not just a matter of time. Some people say, I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting on God. I'm waiting on God. And I'm just waiting for God to act. It's not just a matter of time here. It's more than time. One of the most important factors in God's ways is obedience and trust in his timing. So if someone says, I'm waiting on God to, for him to act, what does that mean? That while we are waiting, we are doing the things that God wants us to do. Somebody says, I'm waiting for God to come back. I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. That's great. But what are you doing while you're waiting for Jesus to come back? Obedience. And we trust in his timing. Not our timing. It is so easy for us to get ahead of God. It's so easy for us to take things in our own hands, as we're going to see in a moment. But God's timing is always best. And let me tell you this. He's never late, and he's never early. He's always right on time. And here is Saul looking at all these things and saying, you know what? I got to do something. Bring me the burnt offerings. Bring them to me. I'll do something. I'll, I'll offer them up. Bring them to me. I'll offer them up. And he misses out. That's mistake number one. Mistake number two is he plays the blame game. Have you ever been there? Watch this. 
As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Isn't that, God has a sense of humor. Seven days, he's waiting. He's, I can't wait. I can't wait anymore. I'm going to offer him up. As soon as he offers him up, boom, here he comes. Huh? I remember one time when I was younger, I said, my friend, I said, let's skip school. This is back in my days of, I said, we can stay at my house. My mom doesn't come home. She works all day. We're fine. We're sitting there having fun playing video games. And here, all of a sudden, I start hearing the door uh, unlock and open it up. And who is it? My mom. Wow. Forget about it. I don't want to tell you what happened because she'll get arrested. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. She was pretty good with his shoes. She could boomerang. God has a sense of humor here. Here he is. He gets done. And, and, and here's, verse 10 is amazing. He, Samuel came and look what Saul does. He, he went out to meet him and greet him. Now don't miss this. Saul goes out like a little kid, like he did nothing wrong, goes and bows before Samuel. Hey, Sam, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I'm so, I'm loving. This is great. Samuel's here. Uh, what did you do? What have you done? What have you done? Now, at this point, Saul could have easily said, you know what, I made a mistake. I, I got a little bit anxious. I, I really, I, you know, I offered him up. I didn't know. I mean, seven days, I was a little nervous. I offered him up. He doesn't do that. He does all what we have a tendency to do, point the finger at someone else. Look what he does. I saw the people were scattering for me. It's the people's fault. And you didn't come within the pointing days. It's your fault. And the Philistines were assembling at Micmac. It's their fault. It's everybody else's fault. Except his fault. You know, I've never seen a marriage get better by pointing the finger at one another. I've never seen a child get, get along with their parent with the parent and the child pointing the finger at one another. Never seen it happen. I've never seen a relationship get better when we're playing the blame game. But here's what happens. We play the blame game. You know why? Because we like to do that so that we're not accountable. It's everyone else's fault. And so when God comes before us and says, what have you done? We say, you know what? If I didn't have this in my life or this was this or, or if it wasn't for this president or if it wasn't for this spouse, we blame everybody else. Except ourselves. But I got, a, I got something for you to do today. You want to point the finger? You can point the finger all you want. Put a mirror in front of you and point the finger. And guess what? You're going to find somebody at fault. And it's you. It's amazing how easy we play the blame game. And we point the finger at everyone else. Adam and Eve. It started there, didn't it? What have you done, Adam? Well, it's the woman that you gave me. What did you do, Eve? Well, it was the serpent. And the poor serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, unbelievable. Is that a bad one? Come on, pretty bad. What did you do, Cain? What am I, my brother's keeper? What do you mean what I do? And you know why Cain killed his brother, don't you? Because he was able. Anyway, um, they're getting really bad now, aren't they? They're getting really bad. 
That was awful. Achan. What did you do, Achan? You go down the line, God confronts the people, and everyone has an excuse for it. And, and you go, and I've been there before, marriage counseling. This, this pastor one time said, here's what I want you to do. Write five things down that you're doing wrong and five things, five things that you can improve in your marriage. You know what the guy did? He went home and he wrote five things his wife is doing wrong and five things she can improve in the marriage. That didn't work out too good when they met again. Play the blame game all you want. We'll never be what God wants us to be. And he saw all, he had all the excuses. But here's where it gets even amazing. Look at this in verse 12. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down at me at Gilgal, and I haven't asked a favor of the Lord. This is something spiritual. What's wrong with prayer? It's amazing how people justify their sinful actions using the scriptures. They say, doesn't it say in the Bible I can do this? And the Bible says I can do that. And the, the Bible, oh, the Bible doesn't mention that, so I can do this. And they try to use all these things. I'm just asking a favor of God. And look what he says. I forced myself. I, I, I love that little phrase. You know what he's saying here? I mean, this, this is as arrogant as it gets anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. He's not saying, like, I forced myself, like, you know, I made myself do it. No, he's saying this. He's going, you know what? I really wanted to wait. but No, 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 no. No, I, I realize I'm the king. I'm the hero. I'm the one that has to do something. So I stood up as a king. I forced myself. I'm the hero. I could just see Samuel's face while he's hearing this. You're the what? I mean, I really want to, but I forced my, I did it. I'm the hero. I saved the day. Uh, look what happens here. Samuel said to him, you have acted what? You didn't wait upon God. You didn't wait for me to come. You did what you weren't supposed to do. You are blaming others for your own sinful actions. And you are now justifying yourself and calling yourself a hero. You're a fool. Now I'm here to tell you, that's pretty strong language. But let me just put this on us for a moment. The moment we decide to act in our timing and blame others for our sinful actions and justify ourselves, we are living as fools. Yes. And God won't bless. In fact, there's consequences to it. And there have been times in counseling sessions where I've had to actually tell somebody, you know what, in this situation, you are acting like an absolute fool. It is wrong. You don't treat your family that way. You don't treat your wife that way. You don't do those things. You're, but you don't understand. No, you're wrong. And don't bring God into this like you're right. And stop blaming everybody else but yourself. It's time to look in the mirror and to make the changes that God wants us to do. You see, this gets even worse for Saul. This is just the beginning of it, but look what, look what happens here. 
He says, you have, you have not kept your commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. You're done, Saul. This is it. Uh, you're going to be a king for a little while. And he was for 30-something years. He, he was a king. But this is not going to last forever. You would have had it, but now you're not going to have it. And you know what? Here's what's going to happen. The Lord's going to seek out for himself. He got somebody who what? Who's after his own heart. And we all know who that is. That's King Who. Now, what was the difference? If I look at the Bible and study Samuel and, and Kings out, what was the difference between Saul and David? You ever think about that? David made his mistakes. I mean, man, wow, holy cow. You know what the difference was? When David made his mistakes, he confessed them, he dealt with them, and he pled for the mercy of God. When Saul made his mistakes... He put his blame on other people. He justified his actions. He just didn't confess what he did. You want to know the difference between two people who God can really use on this earth is somebody, not somebody who doesn't make mistakes because we make a lot of them. In fact, if I was to take a poll here, how many of us have acted out of God's timing? All we all have. How many of us have put the blame on others? We all have. How many of us have justified our actions before and said, oh, yeah, that wasn't too bad. We all have. But you want to know the difference between the two? One lived up to it and confessed it and pleaded for the mercy of God. The other never did. Whereas I was dealing with two separate couples one time and both same thing, infidelity. One guy had all the answers of why he did it. The other one was as sorry as you could ever see. You know which marriage God blessed? The one that was sorry. Not the one that had all the answers of why he did what he did. God doesn't bless that. And see, that's, the difference. that's what we can learn from Saul. Is that when we are hard pressed and, 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 and the pressure is on, we need to wait for God to act. And as we wait for God to act, what does that mean? We're not just sitting like we're waiting in line for a prescription or waiting in a car. Somewhere. We are obediently trusting in him and doing the things he's called us to do. And then when things come up and we fail our wives and fail our children and fail the people in our lives, we don't put the blame on somebody else. We accept it. And we don't look to some scripture or something to try to justify what we're doing wrong. We go to God and we say, I'm sorry, I've sinned. You see, you know what? We can never be saved unless we start there. We can never be saved unless we admit to Christ that we have sinned. We have wronged him. We have failed. We look at others and say, well, I haven't failed as much as this other guy over here. I'm not that bad, God. Will you accept me anyway? God's like, wait a minute, you've missed it. You've sinned. Sin separates us from God. But here's the good news. Jesus paid for all of them. He was buried. He rose again. And now we can have eternal life because of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thought. So as we deal with this in our hearts for a moment, uh, if somebody can go get the kids, please. We're going to sit here and spend a couple of moments in prayer.